this Friday. Your favorite emotions are back on the big screen in Disney and Pixar's Inside Out 2. It's time to greet your Team Riley. It's anger. Let me at him. Fear. Safety checklist is complete. Disgust. Ew, ew. Ugh. Sadness is in the house. Oh, no. Hello, I'm anxiety. I'm one of Riley's new emotions. Disney and Pixar's Inside Out 2. There's a part two? We're going. Ready PG. Parental guidance suggested. Only in theaters Friday. Get tickets now. Beyond what people say, what their voices sound like matters. Voice, as Ana Maria Ochoa Gatier argues, was embedded in 19th century conversations and debates about the boundaries between nature and culture, between the civilized and barbaric, between inclusion or marginalization in a public civic sphere. I'm Alejandra Bronfman, co-host of the New Books in Latin American Studies Network, and I've just spoken with Ana Maria about her marvelous new book, Orality, which, set in Colombia but relevant for much of Latin America and the Caribbean, draws on brilliant interpretations of the sonorous written archive to take up these questions of sound, inscription, and the epistemological and ontological status of voice. I hope you enjoy this conversation as much as I did. Good morning, Anna. Thanks so much for being with me today. Thank you for inviting me. So can we start off with you telling us a little bit about yourself and how you uh, came to be at Columbia University and just a little bit about how you came to the project? Um, I came to Columbia University through, uh, well, the usual process, (laughs) an application for a job, (laughs) and I got hired as part of the ethnomusicology faculty first in 2003 and then again in 2008. And it's been um, a place where I've been able to uh, cultivate my interests. Uh, I've had a lot of space to do that, and that's been, uh, you know, a very important uh, thing for me. So in the book's opening, you talk about the ways that your original question about the 20th century music fell away with the discovery of what you call a sonorous written archive in the 19th century. Could you talk a little bit about that process of finding out what the book was really about? Yes. Well, initially, um, the book project began uh, with an interest on uh, trying to uh, think how, um, let's say, the intellectual history and trajectory of uh, Latin American musical thought, which I didn't want to subsume under ethnomusicology. Uh, and I noticed that if you, um, you know, go over figures such as, um, you know, Mario Andrade, Alejo Carpentier, Garcia Marquez, um, many others, uh, in Latin America, there's a close relationship between uh, a history of interest in the local, um, the literary, and the musicological. Um, so the book began with trying to trace uh, the formation of that form of musical knowledge in Colombia itself. But then I, uh, I was going to do one chapter in the 19th century and found um, uh, a serious, uh, an archive, basically on the Bogas of the Magdalena River, on uh, the boat rowers of the Magdalena River that really turned the whole project around. And it ended up being a project about listening and voice um, in the 19th century. Uh, so it still keeps part of the initial project, but more than a project about intellectual history, it's more about the relationship between listening, um, voice, uh, and how those two practices were central to the creation of the categories of nature and culture uh, as um, you know, fundamental ontological categories of the, let's say, of the 19th century. Uh, political landscape in in Latin America and the Caribbean. 
things. The ways that the key elements run that run through all of the chapters really are concerned with this division that you talk about between nature and culture and between human and the non-human and between noise and sound. And the voice is really central to all of those. In some ways, it mediates among all of those. And so I, do you think that you could tell us a little bit more about how you conceive of voice and how you used it in the book? Yes. I think um, the, the problem of voice appears very differently in each chapter. What, what each chapter explores is how did those writers, uh, because they're inscribing what they hear on the technology of writing. It's, immediate, it's, it's the, the mode of interest of, of registering. So, um, so what I explore in each chapter is how do they conceive a voice? And in the way that they conceive of voice, so rather than a general definition, <laughs> I'm looking for the conceptualizations of voice that emerge from what they hear. And uh, what comes out very strongly is that, um, you know, the 19th century is the moment of um, independence or political redefinition of uh, Latin American countries uh, very strongly. A very strong post-colonial moment in a certain way, even though uh, we know by decolonial theory that it's, that uh, the colony doesn't end there <laughs> and, uh, at all. But uh, so part of what I'm exploring is how, in any case, because there were emerging nations, they needed to redefine the notion of personhood and the notion of space in the nation and listening to both what they call, what they name as voices of uh, peoples and different forms of how they end up categorizing people, as well as uh, non-humans of different sorts um, end up um, generating, being used, how they heard voices end up being used to, let's say, establish the political community of persons. So, um, in a way, a project about intellectual history turned up into a project about um, the definition of the boundary between the human and non-human through listening practices to whatever they called voices. Um, I, at one point, omitted other types of sounds. For example, there's a lot of description of um, musical instruments. Um, and it was just already, if I had continued with the um, idea of voice, it was a huge archive. Um, and there's much more about voice, by the way. So I just needed to um, frame the book somewhere, and uh, voice became one of the framing mechanisms. Um, yeah, that's, re- that's really fascinating. And you, you mentioned the bogus earlier, and I want to get back to them because I thought that they were among the most interesting of many interesting characters in your book. The book opens with the scenes of a 19th century uh, scientific expeditions, and in particular Humboldt, and his descriptions of the bogus, which you quote at length, which are really quite amazing. And the bogus... Um, you can tell us a little bit more about them, but they basically paddled the canoes of these expeditions, right? And so um, it, in, the, in the descriptions, you talk about Humboldt, and I love this phrase, about the ways he overcame his acoustic disgust, right? Or at least he was trying to when he talked about the sounds that they make. And so my sense is that you use Humboldt to think about that space that you talk about between the voice and the ears, Right, so there's 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 what happens in the voice, and then there's also what happens in the ears of the people who are hearing about hearing those sounds. And I was wondering why it's important to you to theorize that space, that space between the voice and the ears. 
Mm-hmm. I think one uh, of the elements of the book is exploring this, let's say, colonial uh, setting in which um, it's not just um, trying to define how a local music sounds, <laughs> but let's say there's two listening practices. For example, let's take the champan, which is the boat <laughs> that the boas uh, rode. So um, there's... Um, uh, two listening practices intersecting here. The way the passengers, which were usually Creole or uh, European, were listening to them, and the way the bogas were listening to themselves and in turn to their passengers um, and to people and to the, let's say, um, plants and animals that surround them. Um, so when I initially found that passage by Humboldt, I was absolutely fascinated, partially because Humboldt is a fantastic writer. His, I mean, others and many others have noted how um, uh, deeply sensorial his writing is. And so what I did is I stopped the research on the 20th century book and uh, started reading travel writing down the Magdalena River. Uh, and I found many other quotes of Bogas sounding, and I compared them. For the book, I chose about eight, but I, in the, I I compared about 20 quotes and all, and began to find a series of consistencies in modes of description. So Humboldt is a starting point, yet at the same time, at the end of that chapter, um, and in another, another part of the book, I also um, spent some time with his own mode of theorizing uh, sounds in nature. The Bogas became key figures, not only... Um, because of they were key key 19th century players, you find them everywhere. Uh, they appear, especially in that chap- first chapter. They appear again um, under the penmanship of um, Candelario Beso, um, and then they appear again um, in La Maria and uh, Jorge Sachs' novels. So. Um, just the fact that they appear and again and again makes them omnipresent figures of uh, transportation in the 19th century. And they were very important. Um, and so this is not like... Um, so the, the fact that they, they appear again and again uh, allows the possibility of, at least uh, based on the um, small fragments uh, about how they sounded to try to speculate not only on how they sounded, which is not what interests me so much. That is, I'm not so much, um, I was not so much interested in reconstructing a genre or a musical mode of sounding that I could trace to the bogas, though I do do a paragraph there in which I um, analyze the possible characteristics. I was more interested in the process of, let's say, um, interpretation that happens, as you say, between the ear and, and the vocal pronunciation. And so what that chapter explores is, on the one hand, the way howlings, which is how they were described, they were described as howling, appear in the colonial archive, and the role of howling in establishing the centrality of pitch <laughs> uh, as the limit of pitch in uh, 19th century comparative musicology. But on the other hand, I also speculate on what does it mean to sound like an animal when you don't have an ontology where, um, let's say, being an animal uh, is associated to a lesser form of being? 
So that chapter contrasts two possible forms or two ways of addressing uh, a, a very differential mode of relating the human and non-human as it appears in the voice. Um, so in the chapter on songs, and you uh, you mentioned Candelario Obeso just a minute ago, and I want to talk a little bit more about him. A chapter on songs um, has to do with the relationship between the written and the oral version of, versions of songs, and that's really something that, that is a thread that runs through the entire book, this notion of inscription of sound. And one writer, Candelario Obeso, in particular, did something that seems quite radical at the time. It might even seem radical uh, today, which is that he transcribed poetry so that it approximated accent and pronunciation on the page, right? And was this actually radical, and why was it so radical, and what were the politics of, of, a, of a text like that? Yes, thank you, Alejandra. Um, I think it was very radical, basically because as I, um, as we know, this problem of inscription of a certain Afro-descendant voice uh, became later a very strong mark of the Nebuchadnezzar movement. What is interesting about Candelario Beso, he's, you know, second half of the 19th century. And just at that moment, um, other philologists are theorizing about the relationship between a form of uh, pronunciation and singing and the creation of a canonic idea about regional song. Um, and the chapter begins uh, with that. Um, and by assigning a certain idea of custom and folklore, let's say, which is the, the term used later, um, to different regions and uh, from Colombia. And what Candelario Beso does is completely different is in a way challenge um, the circumscription of a form of pronunciation of the Caribbean into uh, typicality, and rather trying to show a singularity. Uh, moreover, I think his what the technique for transcribing that he had at hand was uh, the written word, as many others in the uh, 19th century. Uh, and what is particularly um, special about him is uh, how one can see the very sophistication of his mode of listening. In the way he transcribes, these poems are not meant to be read. They're meant to be read silently. They're meant to be read out loud. And he gives very detailed instructions as to how to do that. So um, I think one of the mm, particularities of... Candelario Beso is that he cannot be subsumed easily, um, either under the search for a, let's say, a costumbrismo, or or a figure that uh, can be understood as, you know, sort of hybridizing everything. I think as a very particular figure um, that had an acuity of listening that was um, exceptional. Uh, and therefore, his mode of transcription is very um, highlighted. He's also a tremendous translator. Uh, so it seems to me that this work on translation and then transduction of the ear, from the ear to writing, sort of coalesces in his work in very particular ways. So another kind of text that receives a lot of attention is the grammars and the dictionaries of indigenous languages produced by missionaries. And I was struck by the attention given to those grammars in the 19th century, right, by people of such different political orientations. And in that chapter, you have these 
two really, really fascinating figures, which are who are really on the opposite sides of these political spectrums. And in the middle of the really volatile late 19th century moments in Colombian history, um, it, it's striking that they're that they're taking time off to do these to do these grammars and to edit them. And so you argue in some ways that what's at stake in in that production of those texts is the very definition of personhood and non-personhood. So I wonder if you can expand on that argument a little bit. Uh, Yes. Um, There's very different approximations, but I I compare mainly um, Ezequiel Uricochea, who's a a very interesting figure, a philologist of the late 19th century, comparative philologist. Um, He came back to Colombia for 10 years and uh, sort of, um, he has a, a wider formation, as is typical in the time in cartography and mineralogy and um, other areas. And he returns to France and later uh, Belgium. And he wants to participate in the comparative philological project by putting American Indian languages on the map. So what he does is he begins a collection in Paris called the um, uh, Linguistic American Collection, uh, Collection Linguistique Americaine. In that collection, what he does is that he re-edits the missionary grammars with a long introduction by him, in which he speculates uh, or theorizes on the place of such grammars in uh, the comparative uh, linguistic project. Um, and um, and he, he does that type of project, which is very, very different from the obsession of other grammarians that are in Colombia for a correct Spanish. So he puts on the map a project that is very, very different from that of others um, and attends to that in a way, because for him, he, he's trying to turn the study of missionary grammars into a valid project. Um, whereas up to then, the, and even then in the 19th century, for the Colombian grammarians who had stayed in Colombia, the missionary grammars are only for the purpose of conversion. Um, so I think what uh, Uricochea and Isaacs do in their own ways is try to change um, the study of these languages from a politics of conversion to a nationalistic Humanism, which is still very uh, pervaded by theological concerns, but they're not exactly the same. Um, in any case, they're so much not exactly the same that one of the major attacks against Jorge Sags, who publishes at the end of his life, towards the end of his life, uh, a study on the indigenous tribes of the Magdalena River, um, it's what he calls it, um, uh, it's much more than a grammar. It's also um, a geography and history book in which he challenges the priestly authority of the um, chronicles. And by that token, then gains the attack of the main grammarians in, in Colombia. So in a way, it's a transformation from um, colonial modes of humanism uh, permeated by a type of religious ethos to the political theology of the nation states. So it's very fraught. Um, and, um, you know, the projects are uh, very contradictory, but I think that was very, that was used very, those arguments were used or those polemics were used to, especially by, by Cairo, who was also writing the constitution <laughs> to reinstate juridically the non-personhood status of the indigenous peoples in the constitution 
they didn't speak uh, properly, and since they didn't speak properly, then they did not merit the national status of other people in the republic. So uh, it goes to show how you know the the idea of personhood um, uh, has this political. Um, uh, element that is crisscrossed by, you know, the notions of the voice and its modes of inscription and the very notion of voice that one uses. What is voice for? Is that related to what you call vocal immunity? I'm wondering if you can tell us a little bit more about that that term and, and how it plays into notions of humanity and personhood. Uh, to a certain extent it is, but that chapter centers on something different, <laughs> which is... Um, uh, basically, the distinction between it's a critique of the distinction between orality, a o r a l i t y, and the written word, and how that distinction um, ultimately used the idea of the sounding voice, orality, to uh, negate its very presence, because the very concept of orality is based on. Uh, written notions of how the voice should sound rather than on actual soundings of the voice. So that's what the uh, notion of uh, immunity uh, invokes. It's using, um, let's say, the the same material in order to sort of inoculate and um, what that material does and is supposed to be. So it's sort of a taming of the material into proper use. And what I talk about in that final chapter is something that has been discussed more widely, at least in Colombia, which is this um, obsession with a proper pronunciation um, and a proper use of um, language as uh, instilled through pedagogical institutions and governmental institutions, which in Colombia was very powerful because a lot of, uh, there were grammarian presidents who could institute this through public schools, the church, and um, the institutions of government. Uh, and I also talk about how um, there's a eugenesis of heritage in which in the search, uh, the philological search for the proper popular term, um, what you have is the installation of um, uh, sort of a genealogical search for a term that uh, sort of cleans out the term from its bad heritage. And in that, they sort of develop a method for uh, researching about popular culture. Um, so, and gives, that gives rise to the uh, notion of patrimony. So um, I explore then sort of that um, orality is not so much the opposite of the written word as a type of enunciation that subsumes um, the notion of how things should sound and how popular culture should be collected um, or folklore, lo popular in Latin America, uh, under the ages of um, uh, a written grammar- grammatical ethos. Does that help? <laughs> Absolutely, yes. Okay. And, um, it strikes me, actually, it struck me as you were talking that one of the things that people say about Colombian Spanish is how beautiful and clear it is. <laughs> and I, I often say that because I find that it's true. And it, it, somehow you've opened up this whole world of, of historicizing that, that fact. I don't know if that's what you were trying to do, but... 
Um, yes, other scholars have worked on on that too, which I um, you know I cite them in the in the book uh, frequently. So it's not uh, it's it's a project begun by other people, but I think what I center in is on the problem of orality. I think a lot of uh, people have worked on the obsession of the grammarians with uh, correct speaking, um, and what I wanted to especially draw attention to is how that correct speaking was applied not only to, let's say, an educational or institutional project of government, but it was applied also to a form of research around folklore and popular culture. So that's more specific, and that's, I think, my specific contribution. Uh, But yes, it's the national myth. Um, so you've talked about this a little bit, but I, I'm wondering if the book in general, and I, I took it to mean a lot of different things for a lot of different um, kinds of questions, and I was really entranced by the methodology in particular, but I'm wondering if you think that this is a book that are, the arguments are really specific to Columbia, um, or if you thought about it more as a kind of calling for a reframing of the methods through which we study the kinds of boundaries of race and status and personhood more generally. Um, well, the book didn't begin as a Colombian project specifically. I think initially the book, um, the idea for the book emerged uh, out of a comparison of modes of production and writing about uh, music in Latin America you know, Andrade, Carpentier, etc. And I wrote one article about that and then moved on to only handling a Colombian archive because I think I wanted to get into the minutia and because I started finding all these things about the voice and about uh, nature and culture. So I think what the book does at this point is the book, I, I don't think it's, it, it uses a Colombian archive, but I think it's a book that's significant to think with uh, about the uh, Latin America and the Caribbean in general. Because what it does is it, it, it embeds the problem of listening and sounding voices um, in a 19th century problematic that was common to the whole region, which was um, what to do with diversity of peoples uh, in the emerging nation states and what to do with the diversity of um nature <laughs> in the moment when that becomes a commercial enterprise. So this book stands at the crossroads of how uh, sounding um, and let's say more broadly uh, a sensorial um, uh, element was used to administer the definition and the conceptualization of what nature was going to be and what peoplehood and personhood and the relation between the non-human and human was going to be established. So I think that now that um, this idea of, um, you know, exploring Latin America from the metaphors of sound (laughs) has, let's say, grown into maturity, I think this book provides uh, a basis for thinking about that and, and about thinking about its acoustic dimensions. I think one of the things I want to bring in is also, is which is perhaps more evident for people coming from music departments than from uh, literature or Spanish and Portuguese, is that um, the book also challenges certain histories of the formation of uh, musical thought, but in particular, the something which is usually touted as a landmark, which is the separation of, of um, music and language of theory of language and theory of music in the 18th century, 
uh, into distinct fields. And that separation occurs through something uh, which has been given the name of the, the musical work, uh, which Lydia Gurr, the philosopher and musicologist, uh, put on the, on the map. So um, what I'm arguing, uh, and other uh, other scholars as well. So what I'm arguing is that that separation did not happen in the same way in Latin America. And as such, the very notion of orality, which also Jonathan Stern links to a transformation in thinking about orality or a, an overcoming of orality in the 19th century generates orality. And so what I'm saying is that those two out, the forms of autonomy, music from language and um, let's say technological investments on the ear and clinical investments of the ear in the 19th century as well uh, were separated from linguistic investments, um, the voice and pronunciation, did not happen in Latin America and the Caribbean the same way. So it gives for a different uh, philosophical history and anthropological history of the voice and of hearing and of categories of sound and uh, musical description and of modes of production of musical thought and you know which do not necessarily separate language music sound uh, musical work in the same way. Uh, I think that um, you're also in a way proposing a re- reframing of. 19th century history in general, as you say, because the problematic was so much about what do we do with this diversity and how do we contain it or manage it or make it go away somehow, right? Um, Well, thank you very much for (laughs) (laughs) suggesting that. I think uh, rather that um, what is interesting is that something like the voice and practices of hearing uh, were fundamental to understanding how uh, that organization of diversity, that administration of the different, of the heterogeneity, took place. So perhaps what's new to the book, in the midst of a lot of rewriting about what the 19th century was about, or the 18th century was about, um, is, I think, the, the positioning of those two elements, this relationship between listening, voice, and theorizing about that relationship through technology, the, the, the recording technology available at the time, which was writing. But, um, you know, and, and several entry points into this problem of inscription. Um, so that um, I think exploring those different entry points um, gives us different materials and possibilities of interpretation that can, let's say, complement um, a lot of very creative work that is being done on rethinking uh, history of Latin America. Right. So um, we've taken up a lot of your time already, and I wonder if we can just close by uh, you telling us a little bit about your next project. What are you working on right now? <laughs> um, well, I'm working on, cor- on, on correcting the translation <laughs> of the book. <laughs> so um, it will uh, hopefully come out soon um, in Spanish or sometime next year. So that's my major endeavor um, right now. Um, I have um, other ideas, but they're not, you know, they're, um, they, some, some of them are just articles left over from having worked on the book and um, that I want to uh, coalesce and bring together, but they're uh, too loose right now to uh, formulate fully. So uh, I'm just leaving an, an 
open end for now. The book took a long time <laughs> to research. Uh, I have a lot of other materials that I didn't uh, use more in the 20th century than in the 19th century. Uh, but there's also new things that are coming up. So we'll see. We'll see. I, I'm not sure where to go, except first I have to finish the translation. Which is an important project in and of itself. I think that it's, uh-huh. it's, um, it's really nice to see the translation of books like this and that, that, the way that that happens more and more often. So I'm glad that it's going to be coming out in Spanish as well. Okay, well, thank you, Alejandra, for inviting me. Thanks so much for speaking with me today. I really, really enjoyed our conversation. Okay, bye. Thanks for listening to New Books in Latin American Studies. See you next time.